Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now from the United States Border Patrol Academy. So, Customs and Border Protection, a lot of people may not know this, the largest federal law enforcement organization in the country. And to go along with that, the scope and complexity of our mission is actually very vast. It's, it's just, it's, it's something to behold. We don't just worry about keeping bad things and bad people from coming into the country. We also facilitate lawful trade and lawful travel. Uh, we operate at the ports of entry and between the ports of entry. We have a multitude of specialists that go out and do this job that make up our diverse 60 plus thousand uh, workforce. We have Border Patrol agents. We have uh, Office of Field Operations, Customs and Border Protection officers. We have Air and Marine interdiction agents. We have agricultural specialists. We have attorneys. We have instructional system specialists. To make all that work, it requires a tremendous amount of training to make these frontline personnel able to go out and do the job that they do each and every day. And you can imagine, with a workforce of 60,000 plus, that's bigger than most towns in this country. Those of us that do the job don't just wake up one day and decide we want to go out there and, and, and do it and be a Border Patrol agent or be a CBP officer. We have to go through basic training. And once we get trained, we have to continue our education, continue our learning, and continue to evolve in advance to be able to do this job as the environment and the threat evolves. Imagine, if you will, what the responsibility is to train that workforce and to keep them trained throughout their careers. That responsibility rests on the shoulders of one individual in CBP, and that is our chief learning officer. And for us, the chief learning officer is assistant commissioner for the Office of Training and Development, Chris Hall. And that's our guest today. We affectionately refer to him as A.C. Hall, assistant commissioner. So, A.C., glad you're here. Yeah, I'm glad I'm here as well. So, <laughs> I want to tell everybody a little bit about how you came to be with CBP. And I'm going to do that talking a little bit about your background first. Now, you were a career Coast Guard officer. That's correct. A career aviator in the Coast Guard. And so, you joined CBP in June of 2012 as the assistant commissioner and chief learning officer for CBP. And right now, uh, more or less about 750 employees in the Office of Training and Development, a budget of in, in excess of $220 million. And you don't just oversee the Border Patrol Academy, but the Field Operations Academy, the Air and Marine Academy, the Advanced Training Centers, the uh, uh, Trade and Cargo Academy, the canine facilities that trade all of our canine uh, personnel in, in OFO and in Border Patrol. And then you have various centers of excellence that do distance learning, uh, instructional system design. The list goes on and on. And some other things I want to talk about here later on. That's a that's a monumental uh, responsibility. So you came to us with already having experience in that endeavor in the Coast Guard with 28 years and rising to the rank of captain, which for those of you that don't know, that's uh, 06, uh, the equivalent to a colonel in the Army and, and in the Marine Corps. You joined uh, the Coast Guard, graduated from the Coast Guard Academy in 1984, and you served aboard the Coast Guard uh, vessel Decisive in St. Peter, Petersburg, Florida. Uh, went to naval flight training in Pensacola, got your wings in 1987, and uh, then you served in different aviation assignments, uh, search and rescue as a pilot at Air Station San Diego and in Air Station Washington, D.C. You went on uh, to be the Coast Guard's chief of the Office of Search and Rescue, and you were a program manager at the White House for a few years. You were a National Security Fellow at uh, Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Uh, you got a master's degree in education from San Diego State University. And then you went to Coast Guard headquarters as uh, the Coast Guard's first performance consulting division chief. I don't know what that is, but that sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> you served as the uh, commanding officer for the Coast Guard Training Center in, uh, is, it, is it Petaluma? Petaluma, California. Petaluma, California. And uh, you led the Enlisted Center of Excellence with uh, seven different apprentice A schools and 40 advanced C schools with a staff of over 500 active duty civilian and contract personnel. And you rose to the position of the Coast Guard's chief learning officer. All of these things came together to make you uniquely qualified to basically spearhead this for CDP. Well, it was an interesting ride. <laughs> how in the world? So how did you go from being a pilot to getting into the education side for these organizations that serve such an important function for the country. It's a uh, well, first. Thank you. And second, it's a really interesting path the military takes in the Coast Guard in particular. We as in the officer career path, 
Um, early on, you pick up an operational specialty, whether you drive boats, fly planes, work in marine safety, uh, small boat stations, and then you alternate throughout your career between uh, watch standing, um, operational assignments, and a shore specialty. So you pick up an operational specialty, and then you pick up a shore specialty. So after I went to flight school, did a did uh, six years of flying assignments. I was looking at what to do next as a, right as I was making lieutenant commander. And I applied for a grad school program in the Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard sent me to get me my master's degree in education. Always nice. So and then I went to uh, Coast Guard headquarters on a payback tour from that assignment to do four years working in training management and uh, performance consulting for the Coast Guard and then back to flying and then subsequently kind of back and forth throughout that. So they put me into that assignment and then late in my career, um, had to sort of determine what career path I wanted to go for major command. And I was lucky enough to get into uh, uh, command of a large training center. So I did that and then went to the chief training and chief learning officer, got back to DC and then figured at 28 years, it was, it was time. And I was lucky enough to be on a lot of the DHS boards, panels, and the chief learning officers, the clock, which is the chief learning officers of all of the uh, DHS components. So I ended up sitting next to the, as Coast Guard, CBP, I sat next to the CBP, chief learning officer. Back then it was uh, Dave Flutie was acting in the role. Okay. So I was sitting next to Dave Flutie, got a chance to talk to Dave, learn a little bit about CBP. And, uh, and he said, hey, we're going to be advertising. <laughs> so I uh, applied for the job. I was lucky enough to get it. It worked out great for my family. Uh, retired, stayed in DC, and moved one chair down at all the the uh, at all the department uh, at the department meetings, and and just CBP, just you know, it's as most people do. It's easy to fall in love with the mission and the people. Yeah, it's easy. And the broad scope of things we do, and the people, really, it just you know, it it grabs you. It does, and it's just uh, as a second career, you know, at that at that point for me of of I need to do something that I really want to do. And this is something that I really want to do and really enjoy doing. And when most people explore and we start looking at these different aspects of CBP, people think of, of what CBP is. And they, they in their mind, they see Border Patrol agents and they see the uh, OFO officers at the, uh, the ports of entry. It's easy to overlook a lot of the things that go on behind the scenes that, that make it possible for us to do what we do. And you know, talking about, you know, the kind of the hierarchy of CBP, we have a commissioner, a political appointee. We have a deputy commissioner, and, and uh, underneath that, we have the executive assistant commissioners. We, the officer training development, fall under enterprise services, and they they basically bring a, a multitude of services to the operational components, not the least of which is is training. Your office, officer training development, uh, a very simple mission statement: training America's front line. That sounds very simple for what it actually is, right. and I want to I want to kind of explore that a little bit and have you kind of talk us through what OTD does for the CBP mission and, and just how critical it is. Enterprise services, and I have it down here, offices under enterprise services support both frontline operators and non-frontline entities by providing products and services ranging from facilities management, information technology, and training to congressional budget formulation, hiring, payroll, the list goes on. Hard to argue with the importance of any of that. No. <laughs> And to, to be in charge of any one of those aspects is, is a daunting task in its own right. But let's talk about specifically OTD and what it offers to CBP and how it trains our people. Well, first off, one of the things about CBP that, that you mentioned there is that the wide array of missions and with that, the wide array of opportunities and things people do. I mean, the amount of our workforce, of, when I refer to CBP, that's overseas, in trade, Law, uh, canine handlers at the ports, between the ports, pilots, boat drivers, um, international trade, uh, you know, everything coming and going, you know, everything crossing our border, as both people and goods processes through CBP, they see us first, we are the front line. And when you think of all of those pieces and all of the parts, like you said, that people don't just walk into those jobs. Um, just this last year, one of the big things we've been working on with all our instructional design teams is building out uh, trade and cargo schools. You know, we've been completely working with the Office of Field Operations and an Office of Trade to redesign the entire workforce structure for the trade mission, all the jobs, all the schools, basic training and advanced training, 
that they do. And, you know, that's just kind of the opportunity to learn that, be a part of that. That's just, you know, for folks in the training field is, is outstanding. And it, a lot of people may not know this, but the operational components of CBP, all of their basic academies actually fall under you. So me being the chief of the Border Patrol Academy, me and the other Border Patrol agents come over from Border Patrol and we are assigned under you. So you actually oversee and manage every basic training academy. There's us, there's Air Marine, there's OFO, Trade and Cargo. Everybody, all of those operational components send people to OTD to work at these academies under your direction. Yeah, it really is a great opportunity. And it's, it's fascinating in of itself how different each of the academies are because of the product they have to produce. You know, what those frontline officers and agents, import specialists, you know, what they do every day is different. And we have to prepare them for the scenarios and what they will face. So very little of its classroom training at any of our academies. All of it's targeted to be in the environment and as realistic and relevant as we can make it in all of that training. So they're constantly being updated, constantly different. You know, when you, you mix in smaller seized property specialists, lawyers, all the folks we bring aboard in those specialties, we, we bring those aboard too. And I, I didn't know this until I came over here, what it, what it takes, what goes into actually developing and maintaining a curriculum and an academy. The question might get asked, you know, why doesn't Border Patrol just run its own academy? Why doesn't OFO just run its own academy? The benefits behind having things under a professional staff, a chief learning officer that has that background and experience in instructional system design. I had no concept until I came over here. And it was just something that really, for me, was uh, was very enlightening. That Making sure that the curriculum is kept up to industry standards, tip of the spear, and, is, and serves the needs of the operational component for the, the environment that we're in. And making sure that everything is legally defensible and it's uh, it's done in the right way. It's sequenced. It's maintained. There's a lot that goes into that that most people don't think about. There is. And, you know, it's one of the interesting things about training is we're all we're in training now is that everybody's been to training. Everything's to understand training. Everybody can do training, but there, there is actually science and career fields behind it. And, you know, one of the things about the academies being in training, it's always number one for us. And it can't ever be number one for any of the operators because the mission's coming first, the day to day events, the long range planning, strategic planning, getting resources, you know, being able to support the chief of the border patrol by his having his team, his leadership on the ground and the officer training development to provide a, the knowledge and structural backbone for it should provide him, should take that burden off him and provide him exactly what he's looking for. When you talk about that science behind it, when we have our curriculum outlines and we say what, this is what our graduates will be able to do when they graduate, know, do, and be able, you know, what are those set of standards? You know, we, we count on the chief to say, this is the product I'm looking for. I'll approve this. I'll approve this curriculum. And then we, we work partner with his team and his, his instructors that he allows us to have from the field to make it all work. So let's put this into perspective for the folks that, that are listening. I know what uh, our academy puts through every year. How many people get trained in, in the basic training aspect of OT, OTD every year? Well, obviously, it, uh, it's the number changes dramatically every year based upon our needs. And we partner with uh, human resources, the Office of Professional Responsibility and the operators. So how many do we need? So we're looking, you know, next year to do 1,750. Border Patrol alone. Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. We're looking to do 3,000 for OFO. CBP officers. CBP officers. And we're looking at to do nearly 200 in Air Marine. And we'll do another 140 at uh, the Trade and Cargo Academies. And then so, plus all of our specialties as well. And that's just basic training. That just touches the... So if my Oklahoma math serves me, that's over 5,000 people that go through our basic training aspects for CBP every single year. Right. To right. enter the, to enter the profession, to become law, mostly to become law enforcement officers and agents. And why do we have to have that kind of a throughput, the attrition and, and people move on to other careers or we, we grow or we shrink. Why is it necessary to have 5,000 people trained every year? Well, attrition is a big part and it's where we've been in the hiring process. So we had fallen behind slightly in hiring and then with COVID, we fell behind in our ability sure. to, to hire and to train. And, you know, we've been in the process through 
um, a lot of success in documenting the need, you know, of uh, the, the actual workforce size of OFO has been growing. So as if the workforce of OFO is growing, you combine attrition plus adding, trying to add a thousand or 1500 officers every year, you can imagine how the math adds up pretty quickly. Yep. And, you know, the, the, the economy, external factors, a lot of things uh, weigh into when or why people leave or join. But, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process where every year people leave and new people need to come in and, you know, a 60,000 person workforce, you know, turnovers, turnovers, part of the, part of the job and, and the academies, you know, you, you have one break in service where an academy is not producing what it needs to produce. Then the field is behind and then you have to catch up. And then all of a sudden you're trying to put extra students on top of the demand for that year. And it, it can become a problem, can become a massive problem very quickly. And when, you know, that's why COVID was such a big concern for us, because whenever the throughput is not at the academies, then the operational components, their workforce shrinks and therefore the mission suffers. So it, it's very easy to draw a direct line to what your office does to the impact on the CBP mission. Well, so. think of the mission today. Think of what's going on at the southern border and think if, if you know, this year with COVID, the Border Patrol Academy was still able to take 32 of the 35 classes they were scheduled with all the shutdowns, all the restarts, all the problems we had. You know, if you take out 10 classes of 50, there's 500 less agents on the front line. On patrol, that's right. Right. And that's 10 of the 32 classes this year. If we weren't able to do that, multiply that, add that to OFO. And think of what's happening. You know, we're, we're, we're all focused right now on what's happening at the southern border. When international travel opens up again, Title 42 goes away. If the pent up demand for travel all of a sudden hits simultaneously, I need everybody we can get where every OFO, the, 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 the ports across this country, you know, are going to be overwhelmed almost immediately. And we're going to, the front line is, you know, it's America's front line. It's not CBP's front line. It's America's front line. And that's got to be one of the things that's, that's on your mind as you're thinking strategically about how to get this done and what your job is. That's what you're looking at as a measure of success. One of the things right. is, are we able to staff those components and get that job done? Yeah, everybody's mission is important. You know, even if you're a company that, that, that is building something, you know, you, you're thinking profit, you're thinking keeping my employees, keeping paid, keeping my family going. It's a whole different kettle of fish when you're talking about national security. And this is a national security agency. There is no, that's why when everybody else shut down, you know, all of their training and all of their, the need for men and women to support the mission on the front line didn't stop. And that's why the, you know, the academies and CBP partnering with Fletzy, you know, stayed open through COVID. You know, everything that happened, shut down for 10 days, reopen, you know, shut, freeze for two weeks, reopen, you know, and everything we had to do to, to keep the staff and keep the front line filled. You know, we, CBP is not the kind of place where you can just close the door and say, we're taking this weekend off because we're too busy. 24 seven operation. Right. Yeah. right so. And a lot of that weight fell on the team here at the Academy. Yep, and if I may say so, very proud of the team and how they performed in the FOA and the Air Marine Operations Academy, everybody under. Yeah, it was a great year. It, it, it really, really well. Good. It was a good thing to be a part of. Yeah, it's nice to see people rise to the challenge. Yeah. You know, and this this was a, you know, the those kind of events, you know, make or break people. And really almost to a person watching the, the men and women of CBP rise to what's been happening with, with COVID and everything else, it it really makes you good to feel part of the team. And, you know, you, you think of that federal employee viewpoint survey, everybody has their views of different parts of it, but people talk about the mission. You know, our scores for people believing in the mission and what we do are, high. are incredibly high and really reflect why people do what they do and why people rise in situations. No, like I this. couldn't have said that better. And yeah, that number and, and just the, the, the responsibility, 5,000 people a year, trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. That's daunting in and of itself, but it doesn't stop there. Now they're through the front doors and they're doing the job. We have to continue to train them, maintain their skills and abilities and help them develop professionally and get better and promote. That also falls on your, on your plate. Yeah. It, it actually, one of the great things about working in the training field and CBP, especially for our instructional designers and people like that, there's, it's such a target rich environment. There's so many different things you can do. We're in the process of revamping all of our Intel schools. Like I said, last year and during this year, our main target is improving all of our uh, trade and targeting schools. 
We just recently split and redid the curriculums for the canine commands. We're rolling out new, uh, our senior leadership programs. We're rolling out a, a ton of things in every area all the time. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, we've, we talked about it a bit today that being relevant means facing today's challenges, what's out there today, not what was out there five years ago. So being able to adapt to uh, external threats, being able to adapt to equipment changes, being able to adapt to tactics, being able to adapt to laws, policies, things that change in the trade world, everything changes constantly. Sure. So the, to, to train something that changed a year ago and we haven't updated our curriculum, you because know, we're just doing laws, a disservice to everybody. The laws are right. always changing. The, the way that they're applied are always changing. And we have to keep on the tip of the spear with that because we're enforcing those laws. Right. So being nimble and flexible, but still having a standard curriculum really is a, it really is a cool thing. And, and the, the team at all the different academies and training centers, we've really been able to build out by pushing all of those skill sets out to the commands where we can keep track directly with the program and sort of the training management piece and the schools to continually keep them updated all the time. And it, you know, it, it is a, you know, you, you never want to be in a job where it's the same thing you do every single day. You know, often you're facing a different threat, going a different location. And, and I can safely say, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, this is, this is my retirement job. And, you know, today's nine years and five days. Yep. It, I don't know how it went that fast, <laughs> but it's, it's been more than nine years and, and it's, it, there's not a day of it that's boring. Well, I'm going to get to your unique in, uh, introduction into CBP here yeah. in a second. But I want to, before I do that, I want to talk about some of your centers of excellence that you stood yeah. up here in, uh, in in OTD. So you have the the distance learning uh, center, which you know we do have a lot of training and courses that are offered uh, virtually, right? And that's that's managed by your folks that uh, that do nothing but put those classes together. Uh, and that's going to be what we call our Palms courses. Right. And uh, tell a little bit about what that what that does for us. So. Training in a classroom when you're traveling to the classroom is, is expensive. Think of a think of 40 people sitting side by side in a class, all leaving their work, traveling to be there with an instructor standing in front of them. It is a great way to learn. It's in great environment. There's great networking. There's a lot of benefits from that. But there's information you need to be able to pass to 60,000 people that can't all travel that you need to be able to get out to them this month. or we mentioned trade before a law changes or a policy changes and everybody in the workforce needs to be aware of it. You're not bringing everybody in for resident training, banging an email out to everybody isn't going to give enough detail for everybody to learn. So we have to have a method to push learning information out. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to teach a psychomotor skills like firing a gun, but you are able to teach whole elements around that. And distance learning, you know, it has to be nimble, fast acting. The technology has to be good. People have to like it and people need to be able to do it and access it. And, you know, what you can access on your phone, what you can access on your work and the different technologies that are out there. I mean, we're not, it's not new technology for the world, but we have been building toward this with a distance learning center. And I think it's one of the most important things we'll be doing going forward as budgets get tighter and tighter and the leaders in the agency want to get more information out to their workforce. And even if a sector wants to get out or you want to get everything out, you know, what is the technologies at your fingertip where you can alert all of your students or all of your workforce something quickly to, you know, mandated training where we have to track everybody in the agency. Just distance learning capability is critical for us, even if it doesn't take on a whole course. You know, if you took one week out of a three week course, you save a third of the cost of the entire course. So a three million dollar course suddenly costs you two million dollars. You know, so when you think in. And those millions really add up when you think we have 200 courses, you know, 200 to 300 courses at any one time out there. So, yeah, distance learning is critical for us and, and it is the future. And, and luckily, we had a good handle and moved a lot into that pre-COVID. And one thing COVID had taught us is we have to do more of that. Sure. Going forward. It's a great tool to have in your belt. It is. It is. And, it, and it's something we're going to have to have. So the next one is the Leadership Design Center. Now, we spend a lot of time and effort developing and cultivating the leaders of this organization. And, and again, you're at the forefront of that. And I've been the beneficiary of some of it. Talk a little bit about what we do to prepare the leaders for tomorrow. Yeah, actually, one of the things I love about CBP is the involvement 
in the senior leaders in the agency in leadership development. You know, the almost to a person, the, the executive cadre of the agency is deeply involved and believes in leadership development. You know, it's not just buzzwords for us. People give their time and participate. So in the Leadership Development Center, we have tiers where we attack, again, 60,000 people. So we rolled out two years ago the team lead program. So it's targeted at pre-supervisors, team leads, mostly at the GS-12 level around the agency. Great course that comes out and we send traveling teams out. And we had just built our first schedule when COVID hit. Of course. (laughs) But we're about to re-get that going in a big way too. And then our frontline supervisor course, most of the the agencies and DHS agencies have an online course or a three-day course. We have a three-week course Mm-hmm. That goes really deeply into everything you need to know the first time you become a supervisor. All the way down, to, it does. We do scenarios, working through systems, a lot of leadership development, a lot of folks for the very first time sticking their toe into leadership, preparing them for that to be better supervisors to improve the quality of life for all the people that work for them. Sure. So that's sort of helping the workforce by making the making the bosses be better bosses. And then we have a, a second line supervisor school, ASLT which is mostly GS-14s, but that's supervising, supervising, supervisors, which is where you get into management for the first time. Then the Leadership Institute, which we partner with our new partners, the Garden School of Business, the University of Virginia, which is a five-week course that's mandatory for all GS-15s. And virtually all the SESs in the agency have participated in that as a mentor once or more times to be there to give back and build mentoring relationships all of our GS-15s. So we've nested all of those schools together. So we try and prepare people for success each time they take a, take a new job because we feel so strongly the importance of good leadership. When I say we, I mean the entire senior leadership team, that how important good leadership is in building our climate and culture across the agency. And, and as you, know, you mentioned right off the bat, with as important as our mission is, as dangerous as our mission is, having a good climate and good culture is incredibly important to keep our people, keep our people motivated and keeping our people safe. Well said. And then that program continues to develop and grow. I know you've been looking at other right. classes for pre-command and. Right. And oh yeah. We're, we're, that's one of the, like I said, one of the great things about the agency, when we, we talk about what we knew to get better, you know, if there's something they can do to improve the quality of leadership, which will improve the quality of life, pretty much everybody in the senior management team, the, the agency leadership council and the commissioner and deputy commissioner are all on board. All of them give of their time. As a matter of fact, the commissioner came out with his three guiding principles. The third principle was lifelong learning. Yeah. You know, so he's a firm believer in everything you do, whether it's training locally, nationally, education, to, to improve what you do. And, and again, I love that about our culture. Yeah. So I saved this one for last, the Instructional Design Center, because we talked a little bit about what goes into actually developing a curriculum. You also have to learn how to be an instructor. It's not enough just to have done the job. You have to learn how to impart that knowledge in the right way, in the best way to make the best possible uh, trainee and employee that you possibly can. So these are the folks that go into how do you become an instructor? They go into how to put together a curriculum and a course, something I had no idea about. And it's actually a specialty. People go to school and get PhDs in this particular field. Tell us a little bit. We're we're very fortunate in CBP to have that aspect and, and have that actually help guide the development of our curriculum for all these programs. Yeah, and, and the best instructors in the world can't help you if the material's wrong, if they're teaching the wrong thing. You know, so that that really is that instructional backbone where you think of what are you going to teach, how are you going to teach it, and how are you going to measure the success? You know, how reliable is what you've done? you know, to, to do that. So our instructional design teams are the, we have a, um, a staff of instructional designers that oversee the entire program for the agency, the instructional design center. And we have instructional designers at each of the academies and training centers to work on their curriculums all the time. They're constantly assessing the evaluations, the level ones. Those are those sheets you fill out to say whether you like the course, what you liked, what you didn't like. I learned this. I didn't like this environment. And then assessing your final exams, assessing your tests, you know, how are folks doing? And then what's the reason for it? If everybody's getting the same question wrong, why are they getting that question wrong? Is it the material? Is it the instructor? Is it the test question? Is Are we not teaching that block of instruction well? 
So studying that to say, okay, let's go back and fix that so the students know how to do it. And then the level three evaluations, six months later, are they doing it in the field? Was it worth even teaching them that? So if you spend all that time and money teaching somebody something, then they're not doing it Wasting when they time. get there. Yeah, you're, you're wasting their time. You're wasting the agency's money. So our instructional designers evaluate all of those things continually to update the curriculums and um, improve the aspects of it. So the Instructional Design Center is, is really critical to what we do. And, and frankly, to me personally, it's one of the most important th things we can do in OTD to add value is make sure the objectives of our courses are right, the sequence of our instruction, our tests are measuring the correct thing, our performance-based scenarios actually measure what we want the students to learn, and our instructional designers are responsible for working with the subject matter experts to do that everywhere. And then they qualify the instructors. So really the, 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 the distance learning center and the instructional design center are kind of the backbone of building the corporate tools for our instructors to succeed. And with that comes the possibility of having the curriculum accredited. Absolutely. So you can, the, uh, the people that graduate can get college credit for it. That doesn't just happen on a whim either. No, no. We're, we're one of the big things that we've been undertaking, and it's, and the, it's in the Leadership Development Center does that work right now where we're um, working toward helping everybody in the workforce as part of that lifelong learning thing. Anybody who wants to get a degree, associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, PhD, whatever it is, we want to help you get there. If you came to us without any college, we have assessed all of our schools, the Border Patrol Academy, Field Operations Academy, all of our other academies for college credits. So we can get you a transcript. If you, if you graduate from Border Patrol Academy, become a K-9 handler, become a first-line supervisor, attend those three schools, you'll have more, you'll have almost three-quarters of your college already completed just from attaining those three schools. So we can fix you up with a transport and then set you a uh, transcript and then set you up at tuition assistance and guide you to get your associate's degree in a couple of years from there and then right through college. So I want to hit on tuition assistance here in a second, but to put this into knuckle dragger speak, being just a humble border patrol agent, the curriculum is a living, breathing thing that needs a, a checkup. It has to you know, monitor its health, make sure it's still relevant for what we need out there in the field. And only by being done the right way by these professionals can we achieve that and have it have accreditation and be legally defensible. Sure. And, and so they bring a lot to the table that I don't think a lot of folks uh, are even aware of. Oh, I, I agree. And I think that, that if people realized how much work actually goes on at each of the academies to do that. I mean, if you if you think of where we were 10 years ago today, if we hadn't updated the curriculum, think of all the things that have happened for, in the Border Patrol perspective at our southern border. Huge. In the last eight years that we wouldn't have had any that we wouldn't have changed anything with with children, modern policing, any of the things that have happened at our southern border with surges, tactics, everything we've done with the with the transnational criminal organizations, everything that's happening on our border. We would we'd have the same curriculum we had a decade ago. You know, that being able to change as we go in a defensible way and documenting the change and then having every instructor teach it the same way after you make the change. Yeah. You know, there's a lot that goes into that. If you think of how complicated the customs mission is in, in OFO. And think of what's changed just with adding kiosks yeah. to facial recognition, to global entry. Technology. All, yeah, just all those things have been introduced since I've, been, since I've worked here. You know, if you haven't changed basic training to involve all of those, folks wouldn't even recognize the port when they got there if we had the same curriculum from well, 10 years ago. And I think about, you know, and I joke about it with uh, some of the classes and we talk about comparing 25 years ago versus, you know, what it is today. And when I came in, there was literally the uh, the carbon carb, carbon copy triplicate 213 forms that you filled out by hand. Or if you were lucky enough to have a typewriter, you'd, you'd do that. It wasn't that archaic, but now it's uh, the, the, the systems and the database that are used just blow that away. And, and that's because the processing that is required and the people that we're encountering is so very different than what it was back then. So to not teach that, it would, it would be tantamount to still teaching those, those triplicate carbon right. copies versus what's taught today. That's, that's an extreme example, but it's an example well, nonetheless. Well, being a great instructor teaching the carbon copies today doesn't help us. Right. 
And that's why we want to make sure we're giving the instructors the right tools. So our great instructors are, are making folks ready for what they'll face today. And so the employees that are that are here, part of our workforce, and you mentioned the tuition assistance program, and I want to make sure everybody hears about that because that's something that every single CBP employee should be aware of and take advantage of if they have the opportunity. Talk to us a little bit about what that is. So our tuition assistance program is a straight-up benefit. You know, there's no, there's no catch. There's no anything. That is for anybody who wants to get more education, CBP will pay for it. So we're up to... You know, four thousand five hundred dollars a semester. Yeah, so you you can take uh, your courses, and we're not limiting it. Any type of course that leads to a degree or a certificate, you can take. If you want to get a degree in philosophy, or you want to get a degree in criminal justice, you want to get your PhD in law. Whatever it is you want to do, CBP wants to help you. And fundamentally, we believe. The more people are working and striving and learning more, they become happier, better employees. And again, I've, I've told this story before. Is I've been to a lot of retirement ceremonies when you get to be my age. And people talk about the things they liked and the, and the good parts of their career. I've never heard one person say, boy, I regret getting that degree. Right. Yeah, that really, I, I wish I wouldn't have invested the time in getting that master's degree. Or I wish I wouldn't have. You know, you never hear that. And, and you know, one of the things, again, I'm thrilled about is in the last three years, we started this program. So in the depths of when we were having all these budget problems, the leadership of the agency said, we're going to start. Anybody who wants a degree, we'll pay for it. And the first, we started the first year and we had about a million dollars in the first year. And we'll more than double that in the second year. And we'll probably double that again in the third year of and the I, program as more and more of our employees take advantage of it. So essentially somebody graduates from the Border Patrol Academy and they go to be uh, to the canine program. And, and so they have already a certain amount of college credit. And then they find a school and enroll and finish that using the tuition assistance program. They could come away in, in just a, a couple of years with a degree that CBP basically paid for. Right. And then they could apply to go to senior service school through the agency. Oh, yeah. And we'll send folks to get their master's degrees. So the opportunities are there. Uh, one thing is if you apply yourself and you're willing to throw your hat in the ring. If you're willing to apply, you're willing to apply yourself, do the work, succeed, and then apply for things, the opportunities are endless here. We send 15 or 20 people every single year to get a fully paid master's degree while they're getting their salary. And it's the, the DOD schools and our partners within the government that we send all the time to do this. I don't want to put you on the spot. It might be something that uh, that one of your offices can answer better. But if a person's interested in the tuition assistance program and wanting to get more information about it, what's the best place for them to? The easiest place to go to it is the OTD webpage, and you'll find a link to tell you about it and a phone number to call. Call, ask. Don't you know? It's one of those situations where the people that are working there at the Leadership Development Center involved in tuition assistance really want to help. And I will say one of the other big takeaways from COVID is people are a lot more comfortable learning online. You know, people didn't want to go to college because I, I don't want to drive to wherever. I can't make it to Arizona State to go to my classes or whatever it is. And, you know, a lot of the giant universities, Arizona State, Penn State, are offering degrees online. And there's tons of colleges that are already partnering with DHS and us. So all their costs are under tuition assistance caps. So, you know, look, ask somebody. We're there to help you. And if you can't find somebody, email me directly and I'll steer you to the right person. Sounds good. So let's go back to you for a second. Let's talk about your introduction into CBP. And I've obviously, uh, I've known you for a while now, and, and I know that you were kind of thrown into the fire as soon as you joined CBP. And one of the things that uh, that you were involved with was the sweeping change in our use of force policy. Right. Tell us a little bit about it. You, you have a, a great case study that you give at CBPLI. Yeah, give us the Cliff's Notes version of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to go into Cliff Notes <laughs> with something this complicated. But as simple as, you know, to, to really simplify it is, again, I was a career Coast Guard officer. I was a pilot. So I was not a law enforcement officer. So I, I come in as a pilot who's a who's been in training for the last few years and doing policy, policy work. So um, I started in June and in September of 2012, right after I started, we had a, um, things had gotten really hot at the border at that time. And in a nine week span, we had 10 separate incidents of use of deadly force. I mean, everything, uh, uh, cross border 
from helicopter, in ports of entry, between ports of entry. It just, um, it just was, a, it was a really bad time for CBP and, a, and, a, and tensions were high at that time. And um, CBP started to really come under fire, both nationally and internationally. And as a matter of fact, at that time, we were worried about a consent decree because we were starting to be labeled in the press as out of control, like we're seeing today. We're seeing city police forces and and uh, towns where the Department of Justice is having to step in. You know, we were worried at that point that that would happen to us. So the the commissioner, the chief of the Border Patrol, um, put together a um, you know what are we going to do? You know, we need to we need to do things and and they did things operationally to to calm tensions. But we said we have to look at this from a bigger picture perspective. So what the agency did at that point is we commissioned an internal study. Um, an external study, which we hired the Police Executive Research Forum to come in and look at all aspects of our use of force. And the Inspector General from the department, at the request of Congress, also came in to analyze all of our uses of force. So we had three giant reviews of our use of force program going on in 2012 into early 2013. And, you know, the results of the study pointed out um, uh, significant policy changes, significant recommendations and training changes, um, significant equipment changes, you know, how, how we had, where we had less lethal and why, what type of protection we had. Um, and, uh, and a series of uh, sort of thematic changes in uh, terminology and um, uh, language in what we were doing in our use of force that created confusion. So um, through a span of a couple of years, we went through a pretty significant rewrite of our use of force policy which was one, um, you know, big issues affecting the border patrol in the country then were swirling around as they often do and, and are today, uh, uh, rock throwers mm-hmm. and vehicles and uses of force against vehicles and different police forces were all handling it different ways. Um, we had never publicly released our use of force policy at that point. Um, we still had, we hadn't um, updated our curriculum since the surge um, there, you know, we're at the, you know, the one thing that kept coming up at the press at that time is we didn't even have any training at the Border Patrol Academy on, with a border wall. Mm. So the Border Patrol Academy was great at what they did. But when you're not investing enough in the Border Patrol by investing in the Border Patrol Academy, we our entire focus in 55 days had to be on uh, physical techniques, accuracy at the range, you know, uh, understanding law. You know, the basics, you know, how, how do you qualify to have a badge and a gun to be put in the field? And you're talking about the time 55 days was how long the academy was. Right. How long the academy was that? So we went through, a, a, based upon the findings that, you know, from those studies, you know, for instance, 52% of the use of force, uses of force was at night. So what part of our training was at night? You know, so then we really started focusing on what we hear today, every day in modern law enforcement, you know, the judgment aspects uh, the, you know, what's going on in, you know, basically modern policing. And that's when we really took a hard look and research into what we should be doing. And that's when we really started focusing on that, you know, the, the term we use at the, the academy, the left of bang, where we're focusing on everything that leads up to what was potentially a use of deadly force to prevent a use of deadly force. So we know there's times where that will have to happen, but we want to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to keep the, the public safe and the agents safe as well. So that whole judgment piece for de-escalation, covering, concealment, all of those pieces that lead into before a situation gets to a part where, where you're fighting or a deadly force occurs. So that entire process of building, uh, adding language skills and adding more and more complex scenarios with everything focusing up to and how do you prevent a use of force really has dramatically changed how we do the academy, what's done in the academy. And frankly, it's what Everybody wants every police academy to do now. The Border Patrol Academy is already doing it. Since, yeah. Yeah, put the curriculum in place in 15. We started the changes to the curriculum in 13. And, you know, the LESC has the stats, but I do know the last time I saw it in in 12, we had 55 uh, uses of deadly force. And then every year from 12 to 18, that number went down, even though the assaults on officers and agents had gone up and the the threats at the border went up, uses of deadly force went down 
almost a straight line from 55 to 15 in 2018. I haven't seen the the stats recently, but you know that's 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 what's going on in the field. The the field training officers, the basics I've learned at the academy, and really CBP took a giant leap into the future in how we do all of our training. The the modernization of the 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 LESC, the Law Enforcement Safety and Compliance Center, and you know the frankly the leadership in the field and how we investigate after a mishap, what we learn from a mishap to change our training moving forward. So, yeah, I know you asked for cliff notes and I could go on on this all day. <laughs> oh, I know. But but this is this is why what we do here at the academy really matters because what happens in the field really matters. You know, one bad incident, you know how that's played is everybody's bad. Mm-hmm. So the pressure on, you know, 20,000 Border Patrol agents out in the field every day, you know, and all of our field operations folks out there every day to to, to be able to make a judgment how many times every day and how many situations constantly thinking that you don't put yourself in a place where you're going to have to use deadly force that you may not have had to. You know, everybody walks home at the end of the day. What I liked, and I think you talked to a lot of agents and officers out there. So the way that we trained really, really changed. And you talk about it was a 55-day academy and we practically doubled uh, the length. But to add what we call the scenario-based training aspect. And this was actually putting the trainees in judgment scenarios that are based on real-life events that have actually happened or very feasibly could happen that they're going Mm -hmm. to encounter when they hit the field that shows they have the ability to exercise the kind of judgment they need based on what they've learned, and they have the chance to experience it and make mistakes before they get to the field where it's real life. Right. Oh, yeah. If you're going to want to make mistakes in a deadly force environment, we want you to make them here when we're not using real deadly force. So putting it, the, the, the thing that makes training valid to really make it reflect what life will be like in the field is to have the most realistic environment you can have and the most realistic scenario you can have. So the environment you're in, the players that play a part, even if it's virtual, but are in real person. And the, those scenarios, you know, I, I encourage anybody, cert, certainly anybody in CBP that's here has the opportunity to come to the Border Patrol Academy and watch some of the scenarios or the Field Operations Academy, if you're there, actually watch what goes on in a border wall scenario where we see students, you know, a month from graduating, tactically approach the wall to retrieve a, a, a downed colleague or someone else. You know, it really is impressive to watch a scenario that that folks have practiced that they will face potentially in the field. So they're trained to, to know what to look for that could potentially lead up to uh, a deadly force encounter so that they can hopefully avoid it. They're, right. they're, they're trained to respond and, and take action to hopefully avoid it. Right. And if it does you know, come to pass where they need to, they can also de-escalate rapidly as law enforcement professionals. That's, that's what we train them to do. You, you escalate only to address the threat and then you're back down. Right. It's a dangerous job. And people will be put into dangerous situations, but don't needlessly charge into a dangerous situation to no gain. And that's one of the things that we really spend a lot on, you know, with the with the team is how to how to de-escalate and manage the decision making process so your risks are appropriate. And again, it's a national security agency, but you know, Frontline front Interdiction Agency that's right. dealing with this stuff every single, literally thousands of people out on patrol and, and at the ports of entry and, and flying around in the maritime environment every single day making these encounters. You look at the fact that we've been able to bring those use of force incidents down, despite the fact that in some years the assaults on our agents right. and officers went up. It, it's, it's a testament to what this training has done to put CBP at the forefront of modern policing. Right. And, you know, whatever you read... See for yourself. If you have the ability to come to the Border Patrol Academy and watch what goes on here. Yeah. I, I, I can't say that enough times to anybody. I say that to NGOs. I say that to any, any politician I brief. I say that to everybody. If, if you want to know who we are and how we start and the, the cradle for the, for the Border Patrol, come and watch. Come and watch. So that was, that was one benefit of the PERF report in 2013 and the OIG report. The other that you kind of alluded to is how we capture and track use of force and allegations uh, and uh, and how we uh, look at them in terms of investigating them and how we take our lessons learned. From that was born the, the use of force review boards and 
Talk to us a little bit about that and, and where we are. Yeah, it's a really um, it's a really interesting process of transparency. You know what what should you be transparent about and why? You know, as a national security agency, what has to be kept secret? But I, I for one, I'm, I'm a huge believer in transparency. You know, we we've you know, we talk a lot about public trust. You know, this you, you can't serve in law enforcement without the public trust. Your law enforcement agency can't survive without public trust. Right. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but, you know, doing reviews, publishing the results of the reviews, I think is key. I think publishing our statistics is key. And we, because we were so sort of siloed as an agency, we didn't actually before 2012 really have a process where we were capturing everything and putting everything out or releasing virtually anything or making a statement or a comment about any of the cases that came out. And a lot of that because we just didn't put the time, energy, or capability, or even IT systems into capturing. And we were still a yeah. young agency, a CBP, only eight or nine years old at that point. That's so, right. That's... Yeah, so, but where we are today, you know, the, the way the LASC is modernized since it was since it was stood up in 14 is really remarkable. And the data we're able to capture through review boards, as a, as a matter of fact, there's a use of force review boards meeting today in Harpers Ferry. So, you know, they'll go through everything, uh, look at it, how it relates to policy, and then publish the results. You know, and I think, again, you know, transparency is the best disinfectant. You know, if you, yep. you know, if you, the, for an agency, especially the largest law enforcement agency in the country, if we're not going to tell people what we're doing, we're not, people aren't going to trust us. So that's a, I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to do, but it's the right thing to do. Yep. And I think that's a, that was a big part of the LESC is is actually gathering data. And you can actually figure out from data and learn from all the data mining they're doing, what we're able to do, what we're able to prove, uh, where we need to have additional resources, where we need different types of equipment. But the use of force review boards, the use of force data we capture and help that influence our policy as we move forward and Frankly, it, it's, it makes us more believable when everybody else can see the raw data we're working with as well. It's objective fact. You, you can't argue with it. It's right there. And what I liked is it's, it's a standardized process, and it's, the rules are easy. Everybody can see them, the way that the business is done, and if there's changes that are needed. But it's always with an eye towards making ourselves better and reporting to the public that we serve. Well, think of what we do that now. A decade ago, the, you know, the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times are speculating what our use of force policy says yeah. openly in the paper because we didn't show anybody what our what our use of force policy was. You know, we kept it close hold, unreleasable. And, you know, now, again, anybody can see what we do. We'll show anybody how we train it and we'll show anybody how we review it on the back end. And I think I think every police force isn't there now, but every police force is going to be there. It's just something you have to do as in our society. I just think it's going to be neat, you know, what people say 50 years from now about how DHS and CBP and, and all of the components have evolved and, and, and how we've grown. It's actually something pretty neat to look at. You know? It's, it's again, it, you know, we're, you know, I feel like nine years is a long time, but, you know, the, depart, you know, the agency and the department haven't been together that long you know we're at 18 years right now so i've been in this job half of it yeah you know but how far we've come really is amazing and and you know in a lot of ways i've had a front row or a second row seat to watch a lot of it and participate in some of it and it, it like i said it I, I couldn't be more thrilled with the with the job the mission and the the people and and frankly the you know as an american getting to see what i've been able to see and be a part of never a dull moment no CBP always keeps you on your toes. Right? It does. Yeah. It does. But it's something that I think we're all proud to be part of. You were here to, for, for our graduation. We had graduated class 1156 today. Got to see, that's always fun to watch. I don't care what, uh, what right. the graduation is because you see the, the enthusiasm, the esprit de corps, and, the, and these, these men and women that are getting ready to go out and do this job, and, and they join our family. And uh, that, for me, always uh, motivates and, and charges me. And then you look back at all these things we're talking about, you know, the, those that have come before us and what we've been doing for the past couple of decades and now what these men and women are getting ready to go forward and do, it's just really neat to be part of something like that. It is. It is. And, you know, I, you know, we had talked with some of your staff today you know, after the graduation that no matter how long you've been here, no matter how long you've been involved in training, and I, I can't even begin to count how many graduations I've been to, 
different types of graduations, never gets bad. <laughs> never gets boring, never gets old. And just to see the see the looks on those folks' face, especially today when they get their badge pinned on, you know, at the end of a at the end of the trial they've been put through to graduate, it it you know, it's it's fascinating because a lot of jobs there isn't an endpoint like that. You know, every day the process just keeps going. Process just keeps going. You're dealing with the next challenge. It's nice to see that moment. That's one of the really cool things about training. You have that moment when that class graduates, and then you get to say goodbye to them, watch them get started in their careers, and then turn your attention to the next class. So if my math is correct, you've been in uh, service to the country about 37 years. Yeah. Well, I took the oath July 7th of of 1980. 1980. So that's when I took the oath of office. 41 years ago. What keeps you going? Uh, you know, I think that's an interesting thing. And I mentioned FEVs before early, and we, we actually spent some time talking about this in our, in our senior leadership class a couple of weeks ago when, when they, um, when we actually were using Gallup, you know, at that point in their tools of, of best places to work and their surveys and why you go. And, you know, I really like the people I work with. I really do. I mean, that's the thing is when you, when you go to work and you in, not just enjoy the work, but you really enjoy the people, you know, get a chance to laugh every day, you know, and, and they're not just, it's not just people you work with. It's your friends at work, you know, and you have a, a team you, you trust, want to be with at work. You know, you can't wait to go tell somebody a story, you know, about something. And, and you know, my, my wife gives me a hard time. We've been talking a lot about retirement recently. We're, you may have noticed a little bit of the gray. We, we, we have, uh, and, and you've probably done the math since 1980 when I took the oath. But we, uh, you know, it's going to be, the, the hardest part for me leaving will be leaving the, the social aspect of the job. Just the friends I have in CBP and at DHS and, and the, the people I talk to every single day, the people I, you know, spend eight to 10 hours with every day, the people I travel with, you know, I, you know, you have a job like mine. I'm, I was at the canine center in El Paso yesterday. I'm with the Border Patrol Academy today, you know, and it's, you know, I was just, uh, you know, I was sending uh, uh, texts back and forth about the budget with one of the other ACs right before we started. And I thanked her. And I said, as your reward, here's this picture of me with puppies. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that picture. <laughs> from the from the canine center yesterday. So yeah, it'll 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 be tough to leave because I, I love my job. I do. I love my job. And uh, you know, the people, the mission, and the places are make it easy to love. You'd be crazy to leave my job. I will one day, but you'd be crazy to leave my job. It just it seems like you have fun every time I, I talk I to you. And that's I think that's key. And so you you have the audience of uh, of trainees that, that are listening right now and and uh, maybe even some folks that are out in the field right now. It, some words of wisdom to benefit them in their career and their longevity from somebody that's been doing this for 40 years. Well, I, I, a couple of things I tell virtually everybody is think about what you want to do next, but focus on what you're doing today. Be the best at what you're doing today. If you're driving the bus, be the best damn bus driver we have. If you're processing, you know, what, whatever it is, be the best at it and opportunities will come. And never stop learning. I think you say, I've been doing this 41 years. I've been, I'm, you know, the, the government has been very good to me. And they sent me to college for four years. They sent me to grad school for two years. They sent me to flight school for two years. They sent me to Harvard for a year. So, I mean, I've, believe me, I've gotten opportunities. I got to go to the White House for three years. So I, I've had unbelievable opportunities. But the one thing I would tell you is never stop learning. Never stop learning. You don't have to be taking a calculus class, but you should certainly be focused on why. How does the... How does money work? How does human resources work? Why do we, how do we update the curriculum? Why, you know, why are we putting our forces here in this sector? You know, why, how does the Border Patrol budget work? You know, understand the whys that you can help your people understand. You know, the more you learn that, that you know, I refer to the commissioner's lifelong learning. I mean, when you stop learning, it's, it's, it's time to look for something else to do because the opportunities, the ability, and if you're not continuing to learn, you'll be fighting yesterday's problems, yesterday's way, 
and you won't be moving us forward. You won't be relevant very long. So continue to learn everything you can about the job you're in, what you're going to do next, and, you know, be a better agent, be a better father, be a better husband. You can All these things you can do as you continue to learn and focus on where you're going. Never stop learning. Very uh, Words that are very apropos from CBP's chief learning officer. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to market. Yeah. So last question and very serious. How bad do you think the Cowboys are going to beat the Eagles this year? Well, it's due. It's been a long time. <laughs> I, I, I uh, you know, I'm, if you didn't pick, I'm actually wearing an Eagles shirt underneath uh-huh. this, but, yeah, I but uh, I'm, a, I'm a diehard Eagles fan. Hashtag Super Bowl winner a few years ago. <laughs> but uh, um, it, everything hangs on Jalen Hurts. Everything hangs on Jalen Hurts. <laughs> yes. The one thing I have to say is, I love the fact that Cowboys didn't invest in their defense. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> right. I was hoping they'd have uh, another quarterback. <laughs> and on that note, AC Hall, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for all you do. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, for another episode of What's Important Now, that's going to do it. Uh, Hope we've uh, enlightened a little bit about some of the aspects of CBP that kind of goes unseen and, and the amazing people that, uh, that that make it happen. Such a large organization with such an amazing mission set that, uh, that we get to be a part of each and every day. You keep your heads up out there and keep fighting the good fight. We'll talk again soon on, on our first. <laughs>